Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This morning, we can ask the question, what on earth is God doing? We want to highlight the essence of that question. What on earth is God doing? It's an adequate question, isn't it? I think we we have a sense that that maybe um, God is not working right now. You know, Colossians 1 says this phrase, and it says that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And yet, as we look at the trajectory of attendance in churches in the United States, it's downward for the last 40 years. Mainline denominations are, are void of attendance. Uh, even uh, evangelical uh, Protestant churches are decreasing in attendance, especially in the 2000s. So how is it true that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing? Or what on earth is God doing? Oddly, Jesus' words in John 15 remind us that we are what God is doing in the world. That God has a design, a plan for the world, a program for the world that involves his people, his church. It's his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against in Matthew chapter 16. It's his church that he equips and raises up to do the work of evangelism. He actually equips individuals to train others that we know as evangelists. So this question, what on earth is God doing, is answered here in John 15. And here's where we're headed this morning. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. This is our big idea. Jesus' self-sacrificing love for us invites us to love one another as we go into the world. Jesus' self-sacrificing love for us invites us to love one another as we go into the world. And here's how we're going to see this. Our basic outline is going to happen in two points. That Jesus commanded love. He's going to start this off in verses 12 through 13 and then come back to the idea in verse 17. And then in the middle here, we're going to see that Jesus' disclosure of the Father's plan is that he's inviting us to be the ones who are witnesses. There's a a strange thing that happens, and I'm going to nerd out on you here for a second. There's this thing called chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which to you and I looks like an X, right? And so what happened is in the first century, when you were making an argument, you would kind of build your points to this central point, and then you'd say the same points on the way out of the argument, right? And so this is what's happening in our passage in front of us. That He starts off in verses 12 through 13. He says, disciples are to, be lo- are to love like Jesus. And then he moves on to his next point. Jesus describes his new friendship with his disciples in verses 14 and 15. And he gets to this central argument that, that Jesus tells his disciples all that the Father tells him. And then he says the same thing on the way back out of the argument. Jesus chose chose the 12 disciples to bear fruit. It's similar to uh, verses 14 and 15, his new relationship with his disciples. And then finally, he calls us again to love one another in verse 17. So what we've done in our outline this morning is we've taken letter A, and we've made that point one. 
and we've taken B and C, and we've made that point number two. And we hope that Christ is going to be glorified and honored as we unpack this passage this morning. We're going to start off with our first point, that Jesus commanded love, and we're going to read here in, in, in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, and then again in verse 17, Jesus says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he says it again in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Notice here that Jesus restates this command twice. He says it in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He basically repeats it in verse 17 by saying, these things I command so that you will love one another. And he's already said it previously in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. It's like Jesus is speaking to a three-year-old, right? He's repeating himself and repeating himself. He's constantly emphasizing this idea that he commands us to love. Now, we just want to dig in and notice this phrasing and kind of unpack what Jesus wants. There's two main facets here that he emphasizes love, first of all, right? Jesus called his disciples to love one another. More specifically, not just to love one another, but to love them as Jesus has loved them. And don't forget, this has just been displayed. When we were in John 13, Jesus kind of disrobes himself and takes a basin of water, bows down on the ground, and starts washing his disciples' feet. And he's saying, just like I've served you, so you should serve one another. This is what that love that he's talking about looks like. It is self-sacrificing. The second thing is it emphasizes Jesus' command. Love is commanded by Jesus. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I command my wife to love me all the time, right? You need to love me more. It feels weird commanding someone to love. In our Western minds, love is a feeling. Uh, to command uh, someone to love you is like commanding someone to be depressed. <laughs> doesn't really work. But notice how Jesus defines love here in verse 13. He gives us a crystal clear definition of what this love should look like. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Of course, we know this is about to happen, right? Jesus is only a few chapters away from going to Calvary and being nailed to a cross and, and dying a sinner's death in our place, right? Jesus shows us what love is by laying down his life for his friends. And this is the pinnacle of love. It's not some vague, self-defined notion of love. The disciples were to love one another self-sacrificially. They were to give themselves up for their friends. See, we step away from these verses for a second. We realize that Jesus defines what true love is. Jesus defines what true love is. Our modern understanding leaves us with a, a poor substitute for the love that Jesus describes here. See, modern expressions of love are always about establishing myself. Have you ever noticed this? When we talk about love in our modern second or settings and, and uh, songs and so forth, we're always talking about me and how I feel and what I want and what I desire. Think about romantic love. 
We might not realize it, but our culture uses romantic love as a means by which I am affirmed, right? I mean, you think about the stereotypical young man or young woman who finds themselves, quote unquote, in love, like they're on cloud nine. And what really is undergirding all of this is not so much an affirmation of that other person. It's really an affirmation of how valuable I am and what I have been able to accomplish, who I have uh, seen value me. Let's just highlight this from a song. There's a, a band out there called Lovely the Band. You can tell you've run out of band names when you name yourself Lovely the Band, right? And they sing this song called Lonely with You. If someone ever says these words to you, people who are single, just run away, okay? Just do me a favor. I like that you're broken, broken like me. Maybe that makes me a fool. I like that you're broken, broken like me. I could be lonely with you. That's the whitest way to ever quote song lyrics, right? But notice what the author of this song is doing. You see, the author is assessing the relationship based upon their shared sense of brokenness. I'm broken, therefore I need someone else to be with me in my brokenness. Again, the basic criteria for love is how I feel about another person, whether they serve me, whether they serve my sense of self. We talk about this with family too, right? There's this pervasive sense that I love my children, but in a lot of ways we see uh, family members use their family to affirm themselves. You don't have to go further than the local sports field to find this example to be true, right? Just go watch the soccer fields. Watch the dad yell at his kid who missed the shot. Watch the dad yell at his kid who struck out. Or maybe if that example is a little bit too far removed, think about the helicopter mom who has to have her child succeed in school and everything else they touch because really they're living vicariously through their child's accomplishments. See, eventually, what happens is the child gets wise to this situation. They realize that their parent is just living through them, that their parents, they are a means to their parents' end. And they start to kind of push away from that. Maybe you've watched this happen in your families or at your workplaces or whatever. It's true this morning, if we aren't careful, we can easily fall into this view of love, can't we? But notice here that Jesus defines a love that is self-sacrificing, not self-establishing like the world's love. Jesus's sense of love is self-sacrificing. In fact, I just want to highlight one word that's here in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, theologians describe that Jesus' death was a substitutionary atonement. In layman's terms, Jesus took our sinful place and gave us his righteous life. And perhaps you're here this morning and you haven't heard this before. You're familiar with Jesus and his sacrificial death, but you think of it as this kind of moral example. You're, you're thinking about Jesus's sacrificial death, not for you, only just as an example to you so that you would be self-sacrificing, so that you would be loving. In fact, this uh, line of thinking has a long history in the church. It goes back as far as the, the first century with people like Peter Abelard, it's stated most re recently in the 1900s by scholars like Frederick Schleiermacher, 
and others, they made this argument that Jesus was simply a moral example, that there was no atonement provided because sin produces only natural consequences. And so what Jesus came to save us from is the natural consequences of his sin. And by giving a moral example of self-sacrifice, he invites us to be self-sacrificing. And we see the problem here when we come to the scriptures is we see words like for. Look at this statement from uh, the Rakovian Catechism. And I know you're all familiar with the Rakovian Catechism. I myself was a little foreign to it until I Googled it, right? Christ takes away sins. This is a, a catechism that is stating this kind of theology that has developed. Christ takes away sins because by heavenly and most ample promises, he attracts and is strong to move all men to penitence, whereby sins are destroyed. In other words, sin didn't need to be atoned for. It needed to be simply abandoned. And if we abandon our sin, God is good with us and will accept us into eternal relationship with him. Right? What these guys are saying is like, if you just be good enough, if you just be better by Jesus' example, and you just be like Jesus, guess what? God will love you. God will accept you to himself. But it's here where the scriptures speak with such clarity. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Isaiah chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is our chastisement, our kind of penalty for sin was upon Jesus Christ give you another example. First Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, knew no sin, had no sin, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's not the example of self-sacrifice that brings us to Jesus. It's the substitutionary death of a righteous Savior. See, what this means is that you and I, in our sinfulness, deserved to die. Our sins were so offensive to God's holiness and righteousness that we should, ha- we should have been sent to an eternal hell apart from Him. But Jesus' sinless life was voluntarily given up in our place. We see this all through the Scriptures, right? And we see this in, in the situation with Abraham offering his son Isaac for, excuse me, I misspoke that. Abraham is about to offer his son Isaac, and God provides a ram in the thicket for Isaac's replacement. It's the example of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, that that when the priest lays its hands on the head of the goat, he then sacrificed it for the people of Israel. It's the statement of Caiaphas that we saw in John chapter 11, that it was better that one man should die for the people. See, what Jesus is highlighting here is this coming sacrificial atonement that he is going to do on behalf of sinners like you and me. If you're here this morning and you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, this is what we invite you to, is to have your sins forgiven as Jesus would bear the weight and punishment of your sin. 
But Jesus uses this statement for us to understand something else. Jesus has another thought. Jesus wants us to be loving so that we might be missionally faithful. In verses 14 through 16, he's going to connect this command to love to the Father's plan for the nations. See this commandment in verses 12 and 17 that we love one another? It has bearing for this idea of what God is doing in the world. And so we come to our second point, verses 14 through 16, that Jesus' disclosure, he discloses the Father's plan. Look at verse 14 with me. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the, uh, ask the, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus says this. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. This is another strange statement from Jesus, right? Imagine going to your friend and saying, listen, we can only hang out if you do what I say. Those are the kind of friends that I like to have, right? The ones who I say, hey, go get me a drink. And they go get me a drink and hey, rub my feet, you know, that kind of thing. No, that's a strange thing. In our minds, commands are things for parents and bosses and other things, right? Don Carson kind of pulls this out. He says that in the Old Testament, there's only two examples of people who are called friends of God. There's only two examples of that. There's the example of Abraham in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Isaiah 41. He is described as a friend of God. In fact, James kind of pulls out this same language in describing uh, Abraham. The other was Moses in Exodus 33. Uh, Moses is described as he, meet, he met with God face to face as a man meets with his friend. See, both of these men were described as friends of God. In fact, if you remember the early 2000s, the chorus we used to sing, it was really complex. It went like this. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. And he switched it up. He calls me friend. Very deep. But it's true. Now, Jesus brings us into the special status of friends of God. But Carson also notes that in the Scripture, we never hear this statement. We never hear that I can say that God is my friend. That is not reciprocally stated. Jesus calls us us his friends, but we cannot say that Jesus is ours, that when Jesus calls us his friends, he, he can do that because of his grace, because of his mercy. He can call us his friends, but we cannot call him our homeboy, right? Imagine if you would just befriending the king of England, and you, what, what is the king of England's name now? I can't remember his name. Charles III, Brian's on it, you know, King Charles III, and every time you come to him, you have to refer to him as King Charles III, and no matter how many family secrets he divulges to you, and how many games of Parcheesi you play with him, or how many times you go and hang out at the palace, there's still some kind of divide between you and him. There's uh, kind of a, an expectation of respect and formality that would happen. He's still the king. Even though Jesus has called us friends, we still relate to him as God. 
That's why this friendship needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. In verse 15, he kind of dives in and he wants to bring more definition. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. See, Jesus contrasts friends and servants. Servants don't know what their master is doing. Think about as we've been in the book of John, how much confusion there is amongst the Israelites about what God is trying to do in the world. There's confusion about Sabbath and laws and healings and Jesus. There's just confusion. And all of these have shown that, that God was doing something that his servant Israel didn't understand, right? They, they were just kind of on the outside of God's plan. And here Jesus is with this insider information, and he's not speaking this to servants, he's speaking this to friends. Jesus is now inviting his friends, these disciples, to know what he's doing. They've been told some pretty valuable information. We go back to John 13. Jesus told him that he's going away. And where he's going, they cannot come. John 14, that he's told them that he's going to prepare a place for them. He's told them that he will send the Holy Spirit in his absence in John 14, verse 16. And now he's telling them that if they are connected to him, they can do the works. They can be abiding and produce fruitfulness. It's in keeping with the life that he's giving them in the Spirit. See, Jesus has laid out the details of the Father's plan for them. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. This is the center of this passage, that, that Jesus is speaking exactly what the Father's design and desire is. And he's pulling these, these servants, this ragtag team of disciples, into the inside so that they might know exactly what the Father's plan is. Verse 16, we see that Jesus has chosen these friends for the specific cause of bearing fruit, right? He's pulled them into his design, and now he's pushing them to fruitfulness. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. Notice this. The disciples were chosen so that they might bear a very specific kind of fruit, that's what he says. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Last week, we talked about fruitfulness, right? Jesus talks about, you know, he's the vine, we're the branches. And if we abide in him, we bear much fruit. And we talked about how uh, that life in Christ should be fruit bearing. It should produce works and righteousness. It should produce prayerfulness. It should produce just a joy and peace in Christ. But here he says something unique and different, doesn't he? He says that our fruit should abide. In fact, he says something really confusing because he says we should go so that our fruit can abide. What kind of fruit abides? See, I think what Jesus is getting at here is this kind of coded section that he's telling us that we should bear the fruit of seeing other disciples formed in the faith. We should do the Matthew 28, 19 thing. We should go and make disciples of all the nations. And there's two kind of lines of thinking, right? That, that Jesus is talking that we should go and bear a fruit. 
What other fruit bearing requires us to go? That's always been the call for us as disciples of Jesus is that we are those who are sent out with mission on our mind and on our hearts. You see, these new Christians, this new fruit, this abiding fruit that Jesus calls us to make, these disciples will initiate, as that's these 11 disciples will initiate the most missional effort, religious uh, kind of uh, profilate, you know, I'm finding words that don't have any meaning. It's going to be the most successful missionary effort the world has ever seen. These 11 disciples will bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, as Acts 1 says, not just to Jerusalem, not just to their neighbors. These men will initiate a movement that will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's still working today, what these men have started. See, by the witness of these 11 men, Christianity will spread not just through Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth, not just through word of mouth, but through the words that they've written in this book that we read even now. These men will be fruitful and create abiding fruit that will last for eternity. But also we see this word, go. You should go and bear fruit. What other fruit-bearing Effort requires us to go. It's just like we said, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. But he goes on to describe that this missional effort is aided by prayer. That's what he says in verse 16. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Notice here that God doesn't just send us out on mission. He's just say, hey, go ahead. You've got the gospel. You've got logic. Make it happen. God invites us to ask of him. Jesus invites us to ask of the Father. So he sends us out. He gives us the insider information of what the Father has told him about his design for the world. And he sends us out so that we might bear abiding fruit, and he equips us with this helpline, this walkie-talkie, as John Piper described it, where we call in the sovereign power of God for the mission of God. Have you ever met someone who works in sales? There's a couple different kinds of salespeople that I've seen. There are people who are uh, well-equipped with a product that they believe in to do sales, And then there's everybody else, people who are trying to sell a half-hearted, faulty product to people that they don't really care about. Sometimes I think that's our mindset about mission, that God's kind of set this in our lap, and he's asked us to do it by ourselves, and he's just said, hey, go to it. You've got to evangelize. You've got to create disciples. Go ahead and make it happen. And that's why we do things like give away iPads and do all these other crazy things. God equips us to go out, and he gives us this direct line, like a bat phone, to the presence of the Father. Notice the caveat that he says here. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, whatever we ask in the name of Jesus is to be granted to us. So it's not just this kind of spiritual blank check that I can ask for whatever stupid thing that hops into my mind, a, a girlfriend or a Ferrari or a 401k. 
I'm not praying for a girlfriend. I'm just throwing that out. That was meant for someone else as an example. Oh boy. <laughs> but we're supposed to ask in the name of the Father in accordance with the thing that God the Father's doing in the name of Jesus who, who sends us out. When we pray in the name of Jesus, when we close our prayers that way, it's this kind of check on the things we've just prayed for to say, hey, whatever I just said that's in accordance with what Jesus would desire, that's the things I really want to pray for. And so there it is, right? Jesus tells us that he's invited us into the Father's work that he's sent us out for this purpose of creating abiding fruit. And he's equipped us with this direct line to the presence of the Father so that you and I can have access like Jesus has access. It just makes us recognize that when Jesus sends us out on this thing that we call mission, he didn't just send us out alone. What on earth is God doing in the world? You and me. That's what he's doing. So we step back from this for a second. We realize that Jesus is the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Jesus is the greatest missionary that has ever existed. Jesus modeled mission here for us. Look what he says in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another, what? As I have loved you. Jesus so loved his disciples that he went out, he sought them, he chose them, he taught them, he put up with their goofiness and their foolishness. I mean, we just saw at the end of John 13 where Peter's making this promise that he has no means of keeping. Uh, Jesus, I'm not going to leave you. And Jesus looks back at him and says, really? Because by the end of tonight, you're going to deny me three times. And here's Jesus with all of this love and patience. Remember that Jesus, or John started off this new section in John, in John 13, 1, and he said that Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. Jesus was never lacking in love, that he was never kind of less patient or less caring or disinterested. Jesus was always engaged with his disciples in the fullness of love. Jesus was endlessly loving and we just stop and we take into consideration for just a second that even Jesus showing up on the scene is a demonstration of, of God's missional movement, that Jesus shows up in the world, that, that God is dwelling with man in this way that he is inviting us to know him. And so Jesus models this mission. Jesus chooses people in order to redeem. That's what he says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. See, the point of Jesus' choice, his selection of these disciples was missional fruitfulness. And we stop and we say, yeah, Jesus has been choosing from before the foundations of the earth. He chose his people, Israel. He chose Abraham. He chose you and I if we're in Christ. He's been choosing for forever. And it's always for the point of us abiding and creating this abiding fruit. And he chooses us so that we could go out and see more fruitfulness happen. 
There's many today who say this kind of theology where God chooses his people doesn't lead to missionary fruitfulness. In fact, I had a, for the little bit of seminary I took, I had a seminary professor who said this. He said, when it comes to missional movements, beware the reformed position. And what he was saying is, if you believe that God chooses people, you just better watch out because those people don't do mission well. And I invite you, I invite anyone who says that to consider the words of Jesus. You did not choose me. I chose you that you should go and bear much fruit. That fruit should abide. Jesus chooses for the sake of mission. Jesus commands missionary effort. He didn't just model mission. He didn't just choose in order to redeem. He commands missionary effort. That's what we've seen here in verse 16. The call is to go and bear fruit that abides. It's closely followed by the call to love one another, right? If Jesus is calling us to love, he's also calling us to this fruitfulness. And we are supposed to be those who go out who have the gospel on the tips of our tongues so that we might share about God's graciousness in Christ. See, all of this sets this concept in our lap that our God is a God who pursues His people. Our God is a God who pursues His people. Notice this. God didn't just leave you to your own devices and provide some random atonement that sits, sits off in the distance for, for you to either take up or not take up. God pursued you. He chose you. From before the foundation of the earth, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son have been enjoying this relationship of love with one another. They've been kind of giving glory back and forth to one another. We'll see this in John 17. They've just been kind of trading back glory between one another. They've been just enjoying this relationship from forever. They had no need to create, and yet that's exactly what they did based upon their own outgoing love one for another. I love Michael Reeves. He says this, kind of a long quote, so dig in, follow with me. That is, the Father sent His Son to make Himself known. Meaning not that He wanted simply to download some information about Himself, but the love that the Father eternally had for the Son might be in those who believe in Him, and that we might enjoy the Son as the Father always has. Here then is a salvation no single person, uh, no single person God could ever offer, even as if they wanted to do to, excuse me, the father so delights in his eternal love for the son that he desires to share it with all who will believe. And ultimately the father sent the son because the father so loved the son and wanted to share the, that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of his almighty love for his son. See that? God's inviting us to partake of this part of God's nature that he's giving back and forth to one another. 
to this idea of being missional, it's bound up in God himself. And when Jesus goes about disclosing the mind of the Father, it's no wonder that his heart is missional, just like Jesus, just like the other disciples who became apostles. So what does this mean us? See, I think what Jesus is telling us here is to turn our naturally inward eyes outward. To stop thinking so much about me and to start looking around us. I think there's two facets for this. We want to look to build God's kingdom in love. We want to look to create abiding fruit. And secondly, we want to aid God's kingdom builders in love. Right now, there are countless lost people at your work, in your neighborhood, in your own family. Right now, there are thousands in our little city that face an eternity in hell. Right now, God has ordained us, those whom he has chosen in his grace to be his representatives to the world. I love in John 4, when we were there, Jesus has had this discussion with this Samaritan woman at a well. And as she goes away, and his disciples show up on the scene, they start asking questions. They got some food, and they're saying, did did you want something to eat? Jesus says, no, I have food that you know nothing of. He's not talking about bread. He's talking about his Father's will. And it seems, as we read the text, that just as, as Jesus is saying these things, this woman, Samaritan woman, has brought back all of the townspeople to come and meet Jesus. And Jesus says this, he says, look, the fields are white unto harvest. What he means by that is right now is the time for disciple creating. Right now is the time for God's work to be accomplished. Now, here's the thing. You know who the disciples were most likely to try and evangelize or pull into discipleship with Jesus? probably wasn't Samaritans. They were probably likely to pull in friends who went to the temple with them, who they shared bread with, who looked like them and smelled like them and acted like them. But when Jesus is talking about the harvest, he's saying, these fields are white unto harvest. These people who we don't like, these people who are marginalized, these people who we don't have affinity for, that's who God sees. And when Jesus invites them to harvest these Samaritans, they would probably rather eat raw pig. See, sometimes God has different eyes for his kingdom than we do. And we tend to invite others who look like us and think like us and act like us. Maybe it's time for us to investigate what the heart of our Father is in this regard. God has told us all his plan for the world. The question we have to ask is, are we on board? Do we share God's heart for more abiding, fruitful disciples? Or are we content to live in insulated, safe, spiritual life? So we should look to build God's kingdom. We should look out to build God's kingdom. The second thing is we should look to aid God's kingdom builders in love. We should care 
for. We should love those who are world weary. Think about this. Mission's hard. It's difficult. You, you have awkward conversations with people and you feel what it is to be marginalized in their mind. When you say, I believe in a man 2,000 years ago that he died and came back to life so that my sins in 2022 can be paid for in full. They look at you like you're crazy. Missional living is hard. Isn't it interesting that Jesus tells us that we should love one another while also calling us to go to the world and bear fruit? It seems like this command that that Jesus gives his disciples is meant to create a community that loves us when the world rejects us. In fact, our next passage here that's coming up is going to talk about the hatred of the world. And Jesus is creating this kind of place of solitude, this place of of strengthening that is the body of Christ. Are you providing safe space, place of encouragement for those who are actively sharing their faith and feeling the, the weight of the world that they share with? Are you loving them as Christ has loved them in this self-sacrificial manner? By the way, Jesus told us that one of the identifiers of who his people were and who his people weren't was that they would love one another. That the identifier of whether you're a disciple or not, according to Jesus in John 13, 35, was your love for other disciples. In fact, the book of 1 John reiterates that one of the proofs of the, the, the proof of life in us is that we love God's people. So there we have it, right? This the most missional thing we can do at times is to love one another. See, this new loving community is winsome. You realize other groups have gotten a hold of this, right? You ever meet like CrossFit people? Some of us are CrossFit people. And they create this serious sense of community, mostly because I, mainly because I think that they're the only ones who want to hear about them flipping over a tire all the time, right? But they've tapped into this sense of community and they've built a business model around it. Cults, they brand themselves as, as family to those who have none, right? We see this happen all the time. See, others have tapped into this idea that belonging and, and togetherness and this family orientation is something that draws people. But Jesus did it differently, right? I don't show up because I need it. I show up because others need it. Maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, I don't know if I want to hop into a small group. I don't know if I want to join membership. I don't know if I want to do all those things, but just consider this for just a second. Not what you need, but do others need you? Do others need the sense of love and care that you have for them in Christ? See, this morning, God calls us to be caring, not just about each other, but about the world that we live in. And I want to pray this morning that God allows us to be those who engage the world with love, not just our fellow believers, but also those who do not believe. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would create in us a desire to love others, to love others who are a part of us, to love others in the church, to encourage them, to love them as Christ loved us, and to give ourselves up for them, but also to love those outside of these walls, to love those 
to do not know you, to take the gospel message to them, and, and I'll see you uh, bring them to faith. Train our hearts and our minds that we might learn to love your people, people here and people yet to come, and be honored in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask.